unique sermon this morning in that there's only have one point in this week's sermon. Just one point. So if you take your notes, how many came ready? You're kind of making a jot notes down on your phone, or how many people have the Bible in their hand. I hope you're ready to engage in what the Lord has for you this morning. But we got one one point in this entire sermon, and, uh, and but it's a critical point. It's an important point. It's a need to know point from God's Word, from the book of Daniel, and uh, I, I believe that this one point, as we lay this foundation together, that this one point will be, it will be foundational for your future. Whatever the Lord has for you, from this point forward, the reality of what I want to share with you this morning will shape, will shape your future, how you respond to whatever the Lord puts in your path. And so we're going to lay this foundation together. Uh, but before we lay the foundation, um, and maybe some of you can educate me on this later, I've noticed before they lay concrete down, they'll put a bed of sand down first. You guys have seen that, right? And so that's kind of a pre-foundational layer before you pour the foundation. And I want to just kind of lay down a pre-foundational base before we get to that main point in the circle. And I just want to kind of explore a train of thought uh, that really focuses on the peculiarity of the presence of God. Just to prepare us. The peculiarity of the presence of God. Perhaps you're familiar with the term omnipresent. That's the doctrinal term that indicates that God is wholly present in every place all at the same time. God has no need to travel. God is wholly present in every place all at the same time. And we see this throughout Scripture. His presence um, in Acts chapter 17 verse 28 Paul is speaking on Mars Hill and he speaks of the Father and he says, in him we live and move and have our being in the Father. In fact, he was speaking to them and he said, the Lord is not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, and, and we are His offspring. So that means no matter where we are, no matter what we do, we cannot escape His presence, for we are in Him. Wherever we move or live or have our being, we are in God. He is not just the generator of life, He is life itself. And if He is life, then His presence is is inescapable. Just as your body naturally radiates heat, if it is in existence, so God, by virtue of His existence, emanates life. And outside of Him, no living thing exists. So in that way, He is everywhere, because we could never be outside of our source and sustainer of life. Romans 11.36 says that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Just visualize that in your head. Think of that. From Him, and then through Him, and to Him, are all things. So this tells us that He is the ultimate source, sustainer, and summation of all of life. We are from Him. We move through Him. We go to Him. All life does. Of all things. I've used the illustration before. If your life is an arrow, then God is the bow. And God is the target. And God is the distance between the two as well. And this is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, 
which is a great passage to reflect upon where he says, where can I escape from your presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed with the dead, you are there. If I were to sprout wings like the morning and make my abode out in the ocean somewhere, even there, your right hand upholds me. Your hand protects me. And yet, that same psalmist, the same man who wrote that song, can also, with, with divine inspiration, plead with God and say, Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself from me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God can divinely teach that he is everywhere at all times, and yet also prophesy through Isaiah and say, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And so just as a foundational thought, we see that though the Father is quite literally inescapable and is ever-present, even so, there is a closeness and a personal presence that is longed for and, and sometimes granted, sometimes is declined. We see this in Jesus. You know, as the Father extended His presence, He did it through the person of Jesus. He sent His Son to extend His presence to us. It was prophesied His name would be Emmanuel. And so it was. And you know what Emmanuel means? Emmanuel means what? God with us. And so Jesus was with us. But He was with His disciples in a different way than He was with the Pharisees. And he was with the Pharisees even, in a different way than he was with, say, some Italian peasant on the streets of Rome, a thousand miles away. There were different kind of degrees of presence. He was, uh, he, he, he provided an earthly presence, but then to some, more of a personal presence, and then to others, even an intimate presence. And Jesus fought with many people to be truly present with them. Think about the woman at the well in John. We all, we're all familiar with that story. But think about her interaction with Jesus. It started out very superficial. And Jesus, in that conversation, Jesus is battling. He's fighting. It's not a conversation. It's a battle. It's a fight to be really present with her. She was a woman who was used to superficial. She was a woman who, for many years now, had been used to being uh, to being looked at but not really seen. She was a woman who was used to being listened to but not really heard. And she brought that that level of interaction, that superficial mode of existence. She brought that to Jesus, and Jesus fought to break through it. He kept trying to reach who she was. He was saying, like, I'm right here. I need you to see who I am. I need you to be here with me. And finally when he did, when he broke through, she changed. Remember? She ran out. She went to get the entire village to come and see the man, Jesus. And then his disciples come bumbling in. And now he's back to that superficial level again. He says, I've got food that you don't know about. And they're like, bread. Again, back to the superficial even with his disciples, we think about when he was asleep in the boat during the storm. Remember that story? He was present with them, wasn't he? But they weren't present with him. 
He was present, but while they were rowing their way through the storm, trying desperately to get by without disturbing their Savior, they weren't present with him. And without changing anything on his behalf, he, the man was unconscious, he was asleep in the bottom of the boat, and he was still present, and yet the presence was known when they came to him. And then he comes and he stills the storm, not a ripple in the ocean, not a zephyr in the sky, just calm. But that presence wasn't available until they came, took advantage of it. You think about the night of his death, we see uh, different degrees of presence. They're eating, they're in the upper room, Jesus is with all twelve, and yet you have Judas, his back, to the Lord, walking out the door. That's one degree of presence. And then all the way on the other scale of presence, you have, you have John. John, not just... Let me make you uncomfortable, Aaron. John, not just not just with Jesus, but this kind of with Jesus. He's like this. He's close. He's leaning in. And then you got another level of Peter over here. He's, he's got a degree of intimacy with Jesus, but it's coming through John to Jesus. So you see there was 12 different men, and every one of them kind of a different level of presence with Jesus. And I, with this kind of pre-foundational thought process here. I just want to challenge you and encourage you. Don't settle for an awareness of God's omnipresence, but push for the practical experience of God's personal presence. Strive to be present with Him as He longs to be present with each one of you. Create a space for Him in your life. For his presence to be experienced and known. And if you don't, your life will be full. Every nook and cranny will be full of voices that are probably drawing you away from Christ in some measure. You know, nature abhors a vacuum. You create a vacuum in the water and, it, and all the forces of nature are pushing to fill that up. And we kind of have to do that to hear God in our life. We've got to kind of create this space and push out all the voices, and they're going to be pushing back with all the weight of the world to intrude on that space. But we got to make a space to be with God. we got to make our hearts ready. Because God's not going to, rarely does God just pound through. Every once in a while, He does. But most of the times, He's like, like a fly in the room. You ever try to take a nap on a quiet Saturday afternoon, and there's just one little nap in the room? If you're humming a song, you don't hear the gnat. If the TV's going, you don't hear the gnat. Even if the fan is on, you don't hear the gnat. But in the stillness, in the quiet, that gnat is so loud that you can't sleep. That's God. When we make a space like, I'm not going to listen to any other voices, I need to be with God right now in this moment. He's loud and He's clear. And oftentimes, that's why we don't create this.
Spirit of Christ within us. So we have, now the divine nature is a part of our person. Yet even then, we see the same story, where this indwelling, Christ, that the Holy Spirit could be whelming in us, filling us, or we can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can be out of sync with the Holy Spirit rather than walking in the Holy Spirit. And so again, that presence, it's here, but how much of the presence do we allow in our lives? So, again, that's not the main point of the sermon. That's just kind of some pre-foundational prep work before we lay this concrete slab that we find in Daniel chapter 3. And you know, before you lay a concrete slab, there's one other thing you have to do. You've got to build those forms, right? So you have something to pour the slab into that. Those forms are going to be set in Daniel chapter 3. But again, before we even lay those forms, I think, and maybe Bilski can help me on this later, but it always seems like they lay, they pull some string tight, like form a straight line. I don't know exactly what it does. But before the concrete gets laid, there's always some string up, so some kind of a... I don't know what it is, like a stringer line or something. Let, let's, let's just, I want to think of one other thing before we go to Daniel chapter 3. Just to prepare us for the main point of this sermon. And that's the word Christophany. Christophany is a, is a biblical term. It's a, it's a doctrinal term. And a Christophany is when we see an appearance of the pre-carnational Christ in the Old Testament. So carnational means of the flesh, pre-carnational, before Christ took on flesh, and yet sometimes he would appear in the Old Testament. Now this is different than a theophany. Theophany is when God, the Father, would make himself visible in some way, seen. Like, like with Moses in the burning bush, he could be seen. That would be considered a theophany. Or Abraham... In uh, I think it was Genesis 18, it says Yahweh appeared to him, and it was a man with two partners. And so that would be a theophany. But we want to think of Christophanes, where the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, appeared in human form in the Old Testament. One of those would be Judges chapter 2. Where listen to this, it says, Now the angel or the messenger, the angel of the Lord. And Lord is in all caps there, so that means Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. That I swore to give to your fathers. Did an angel do that, or did Yahweh do that? Yahweh did that. And yet this is a messenger of Yahweh. I think this is the second person of the Trinity. He says, I brought you up. I swore to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. So now I will drive them out before you. But this is a man standing there in human form. This is a Christophany. We see another example of Christophany in Zechariah, which is the last book in the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 3, we see similar... Oh, it's not the last book, I'm sorry. Close, close to the last book. Zechariah chapter 3, where he sees a vision, and he sees that same term used, the angel of the Lord. It says, Yahweh said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
Is not this a brand plucked for the fire? Now Joshua is standing before this angel of the Lord, and Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Can an angel do that? No. He says, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure investments. It's the same term, the angel of the Lord. So those are two examples of a Christophany in the Old Testament. But now we get to why that's critical in Daniel chapter 3. This is why that, um, that prep work is important. I think it's, it's going to be helpful for us. Now, one other possible um, Christophany would be, if you think about it, remember how Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1? Can you think of some of the things that it's described? He's got a glowing appearance. He's got eyes of fire. He's got a golden sash and white garments. Uh, his voice was like many waters. Remember that in Revelation chapter 1? In Daniel chapter 10, we see an appearance. And listen to this description. I looked up and behold a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. And his body was like barrels glowing stone. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleaming of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. That sounds almost exactly like what we see in Revelation 1, isn't it? And here he's showing up in Daniel chapter 10, giving a message to Daniel. So, all of that prepares us now for Daniel chapter 3. Let's, let's, let's kind of just set this up. Let's look at, we're familiar with the story, but let's recall it. And in this chapter, we see some familiar themes that we've already covered in Daniel. We see some recurring themes. First of all, you know the story in Daniel chapter 3, the, the great uh, uh, statue is set up. It's made of gold. The command is when the music starts playing, you need to worship it. And all the people are brought to the place, the music starts playing, and everyone starts to worship. But, there's three men who don't. Of course, their names were, let's not use their Babylonian names, let's use their Hebrew names. Their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They refused. So look at verse 8. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the burning fire furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, Pay no attention to you. Listen to their descriptions. What? This would be proud. They pay no attention to you. This is a good thing. This is a righteous character. They pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so already we see some recurring things. First of all, we see God's providence in this. Uh, notice Daniel is absent from this chapter. Where is Daniel at? Well, we can read some old, like, uh, Jewish Talmud, and the, the ancient teaching is that God had providentially arranged for Daniel to be away on business, because Daniel, with his history of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel did not want to be worshipped, and Daniel did not want to get the credit for delivering 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So providentially, he was away. We see God in control. We see Daniel's devotion, his resolute devotion to God was shared by his three friends in that they were singular in their worship and they were singular in their service. And this cost them. Notice what they say. The, the king brings them back before him in the following verses, 13 through 15. And he gives them one more chance. And let's look at their reply in verse 16. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you on this matter. There's no second chance required. If this, uh, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. They knew he was able. He said, he is able to deliver us. And we believe he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So we see as an observation here, it's interesting that uh, they believed he was able. But even if God was unwilling to rescue them, they would not take that as an indication that he was unable. Unwilling does not equal unable. And regardless of his choice, it would have no bearing on their devotion to him. It's not, it's not a, a tit-for-tat situation. We're going to be devoted to you no matter what you do to us. Because you are God and we are not. And you have chosen us. So we belong to you. Now, let's get to the main point here. Look what happens. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered them, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flames of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's, this isn't an anomaly. This is a for sure thing. The furnace was hot. It killed those who delivered the men into the furnace. Verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now here's the main point of the sermon. Verse 24, then the king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Whomever he saw in there, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He did not know who it was, but he knew this was not a normal human being. This was someone that was a son of the gods. He knew this was a divine being. And here's the point that I really want to drive home. Before God deliver us, delivers us from our suffering, He joins us in our suffering. Before God delivers us from our suffering, he joins us in our suffering. We see it on display here. Really, this is a gospel truth. That God joins us in our suffering before he delivers us from our suffering. Think about the heart of the gospel. The world was perfect. 
We blew it. We destroyed this perfection. As beautiful as this world is around us, it's broken. And it's because of our sin. And instead of fixing it from afar, what did God do? He came into the world. He experienced the brokenness for himself. He took on human flesh. He lived for 33 years. He joined us in the suffering. Think about the cross. We had a sin problem. We were destined for destruction. And rather than just waving a theological wand and saying all is forgiven, he had to, on the cross, experience the penalty for himself. He experienced it on our behalf. Not only that, think about the redemption of what awaits us in the resurrection. Knowing that we would face death, he went in death first. He conquered death with death. By dying on the cross and being buried, he came into our suffering so that in the resurrection, he can rescue us from the suffering. And so I ask you this morning, what furnace are you facing? The reality is these three men never would have seen Christ had they not first been thrown into the furnace. So what furnace are you facing? Perhaps you're experiencing the furnace of unfair treatment. Or an unfaithful spouse. Or an unfavorable diagnosis. Christ will meet you there. In that time of suffering. He will be there. And he will see you through. Maybe you're experiencing loss. The furnace of uncertainty. Or isolation. Or exhaustion. Maybe you're being attacked. Or maybe you're being abandoned. Or maybe you're being accused. Everyone here has some furnace. That's either coming out of or going into but you can be assured that Christ will meet you there in your suffering before he rescues you from your suffering. And if this is true, there are four actions that you should take. If Christ meets you in your suffering before he rescues you from your suffering, I would say this. Don't seek to avoid suffering at all costs. We, we have that kind of programmed into our DNA, don't we? We seek to avoid suffering at all costs. Don't do that. Try to anticipate. What is the Lord doing here? Perhaps the Lord is going to meet me in this suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says that it is our calling. Suffering is our calling. It's our path. It's the way. It's not a detour. It's not a roadblock. That's the way. So don't avoid suffering at all costs. I would say this is a second implication, an action you can take. I would just encourage you, perhaps you are suffering right now. This word is for you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear and do not be in dread. Be strong and courageous. Don't fear. Don't be in dread. These words come from Deuteronomy. Where God assures his presence and he encourages them with this word. In Deuteronomy chapter 31. Moses says, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. And they're on the cusp of the promised land. 40 years they've been waiting for this. And now they've got to go in, conquer their enemies, and take over the land. And Moses says, I can't go in with you. The Lord said, I'll never cross the Jordan. He says, the Lord God himself will go over before you. And he will destroy those nations before you. So that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og and the king of the Amorites to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over 
to you, and you shall not, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. And God doesn't change. God is ever present with you right now, whatever you might be suffering, whatever suffering you might face, God is with you. And he's for you. And he will be victorious on your behalf. Can I encourage you, based on this truth that God delivered, uh, that before God delivers us from the suffering, he joins us in the suffering. Don't seek to avoid it at all costs. Be strong and courageous. Don't fear or be in dread. Thirdly, I would say this, rejoice. When you find yourself in suffering, rejoice. And there's many reasons why. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13, maybe you can turn there to 1 Peter. We'll, we'll, I'll let you close out in 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter. Here's why you should rejoice in your suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 13 says this. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. He's there, you're there, you're with him. And so rejoice because you're in your suffering, your connection to Christ is established. So that brings us joy. We rejoice in our suffering because in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11 in the Beatitudes, he says, you need to rejoice when you're persecuted because great is your reward. So when you suffer, you're finding connection with Christ. When you suffer, you will be uh, divinely rewarded in heaven. When you suffer, you need to rejoice because your worth is proven. In Acts chapter 5, in verse 42, the apostles were beaten for the name of Christ. And they left rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer for Christ. You should rejoice when you suffer because suffering is like a... It's a little a petri dish of your spiritual development. Your spiritual development begins in suffering. Romans chapter 5 makes it very clear. I'll read that to you really quick. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I encourage you, don't try to avoid suffering at all costs. Be strong and courageous. Don't fear or be in dread. Rejoice when suffering occurs because God has a plan. He's developing your character. He's spiritually uh, uh, maturing you. You have a reward. You have a connection with Christ. And one last reason why or what you should do because Christ joins us in our suffering before he delivers us from our suffering. And with this, I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. We're going to, we're going to close this Sunday with a new song. Uh, but it, I don't know how long it's been around, but it sounds old. It's got an old sound to it, doesn't it? And I think it's going to get kind of stuck in your mind. I hope it does. Because it's a, it's a motivating song. This song has been echoing in my heart all week. And I think it'll do the same for you. And I think it really seals what we've been talking about this morning. But one last word of encouragement, action you should take because Christ joins us in our suffering. I want to encourage you to stay mindful in your suffering. Stay mindful. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says very clearly, Servants, be subject to your masters. Uh, 
with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Be mindful of all of this God's presence. Be mindful of what His working is in your suffering. Be mindful of why He has put you in this position. We see this also, this mindfulness also in um, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, there, uh, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's another way to say, be mindful. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had in His suffering. For He suffered in the flesh. And so we're going, when we go into suffering, we're going where Christ is. He paved the path. He set the trail. Now we're following in his footsteps. And all I know is that you are most like Jesus when you are suffering. And when you suffer like Jesus, you are drawn to Jesus. And if Jesus stands in the kiln of suffering, that's where you want to be. You want to be with Jesus. The meeting place of suffering is the meeting place of Jesus. And whatever it costs, we want to be with Jesus. Because when we see Him, we will be like Him. Let's stay in the same.